Exodus chapter 5, in 2003, Donald Rumsfeld, the, the Secretary of Defense for the United States, was giving a press conference. Our country had recently invaded the nation of Iraq. And a reporter was asking a question that went something like this. Mr. Secretary, why is it that your generals seem to be deviating from your battle plan? And Rumsfeld, if you remember him, if, you're, if, if you were paying attention back then, was not exactly a warm and fuzzy kind of guy. And he looked at this reporter and said, sir, I don't believe you have the battle plan. And that's very similar to the way we address God sometimes. Lord, why aren't you doing what you're supposed to do? Lord, why aren't things going the way they're supposed to go? And God is much more gracious than any politician, and he would graciously say to us, I don't believe you understand the way things are supposed to go. I don't think you know the battle plan. I have it. You don't. You're going to have to trust me. One of my favorite preachers is Tim Keller. In 1989, he started Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. He went from pastoring a church in Virginia where most people expect to go to church, where most people are either Christian or they have a knowledge of and respect for Christianity, to Manhattan, where people worship money, they worship fame, they worship pleasure, they have no interest in organized faith, especially Christianity. And yet, starting in 1989, today it's one of the most influential churches in the world, not because they did anything hip or trendy or, or, or new, it's a very traditional Presbyterian church, but because, number one, they preach the gospel consistently, and number two, they didn't shy away from tough questions. So people, over the course of his years as pastor, he's retired now, but they would come to him often and say things like, you know, a friend invited me to this church, and I never thought I would even go to a church, but I, I came, and you people are a lot different than I thought you'd be. You're a lot less weird, a lot more friendly. Um, but I, I, have to, I have to let you know, there's no way I'm ever going to be a Christian. And it's because if there's a God like the one in the Bible who, who loves everybody and who knows everything, then why are, why are we living in a world where little children die of terrible diseases? If God is like that, then how come a small portion of the people have all the resources and everybody else just has to go hungry? If God is like that, then how come genocidal dictators can just roam to and fro and kill all their people and nobody even stands up to them? Now, I can't believe in a world where a loving, knowing God could allow these things to happen. And Keller would, he would say, those are good questions. And he had this conversation all the time. Those are good questions, but let me ask you a question. Assuming that such a God exists, that the Bible declares that he's all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful. Is it possible that that God is aware of some morally sufficient reason for these things to exist that you're not aware of? In other words, is it possible that God knows some things that you don't? And no matter how brash, no matter how skeptical, almost every time the person would say, yeah, you got a point. It is possible. When my mom was, uh, when, when I was 18 years old, I went off to the University of Houston for my first year of college. At the same time, my mom, that very same year, went off to University of Houston, Victoria, to college. So our little family of four had two people at college at the same time. My dad, my dad's salary was struggling to pay for both of those tuitions. And, and to make matters worse, my mom made better grades than I did which was really awkward whenever the grades were handed out every semester. And one time my mom had this history class, and one day in that history class they were discussing 
how in 1945, the United States dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Japan, and then three days later, another one on Nagasaki, two attacks that ended up claiming at least 230,000 lives, as best we can estimate, and brought World War II to an end. And the, the professor was asking, was President Harry Truman, the president of the United States at the time, was he right to drop those bombs? Was he right to make that decision? And mom was, of course, in, in her 40s, and everybody else in the class was the age of her kids. So, you know, 1824. Um, and they were all very, very confident in saying, no, we were wrong to do that. Uh, we've, we're still the only nation that's used those weapons, and so it makes us look like we're moral monsters, and, and all those people didn't have to die. We could have brought the war to an end in a different way. And, and my mom is not a confrontational person, never has been, but she felt compelled to speak up at that point. And so she said, y'all, I, I have a different perspective. I don't know who's right or who's wrong in this, but she said, I was born in 1946. And in 1945, at the time those the decisions were being made, my, my dad was stationed, was in the Navy and he was stationed in the Philippines because he was part of what would be the invasion force that would invade the Japanese islands if the war didn't come to an end. And she says, so there's a very good chance that if we hadn't dropped those bombs, the Japanese would have kept fighting and my dad would have had to invade Japan and he probably would have died and I wouldn't be here today. And she said, it's interesting how her comments changed the tone of the class because they went from very brash and very confident and we were wrong to suddenly, well, you know, there's lots of different angles on this. This is a complicated argument. And it is a complicated argument. I'll, I'll give you a couple of figures. The United States government at the time expected an invasion of Japan to cost 4 million lives just on our side. 4 million casualties, that is, 800,000 deaths. That's just on our side. The Japanese expected a much higher death toll. Vice Admiral Takahiro Onishi uh, expected and was on record as saying 20 million Japanese would die if there was an, an allied invasion of Japan. The, the culture of that regime was such that surrender was considered disgrace. They would rather fight to the last man, woman, or child than give up. And so... That it was expected to be a bloodbath. It was expected to be a, a, an incredible uh, time of tragedy. And those students didn't know all that when they were talking about things. They didn't have all that information. And think about how God makes decisions that impact millions of people every single day, multiple times a day. And we don't have the information he has. We don't know what he knows. And we second guess him, but we don't know. We don't have the battle plan. Now back to us. We all have our moments of doubt. Maybe you've said in the past, why am I struggling while that other person is thriving? I, I keep getting laid off my job. I can't pay my bills. He's buying new cars, taking around the world trips, going out on the lake every Sunday, and, and he doesn't even acknowledge God. Where's the justice in that? I'm single and I'm trying to do things God's way and, and, and I can't find someone who will marry me. I can't find Mr. or Ms. Wright, whatever the case may be. Uh, I'm being theoretical here, right? But my friends who do whatever they want to do, throw caution to the wind, follow their own instincts, their own desires, they're happily married. Why? Why won't God heal my child, my parent, my sibling, my body when I try my best to be faithful? What am I missing here, Lord? And I want to emphasize, it's not wrong to ask those questions. 
It's not, God is not offended by your honesty. God is not offended by your heartbreak, your disappointment, your confusion. If you read the Psalms from Psalm 1 to 150, those kinds of questions are all through that book. In fact, more of the Psalms than any other type are what we call Psalms of complaint or lament. So you take your confusion and your anger and your frustration and your fear and your doubt to God. He is not offended, but it's so important for us in terms of faith to know that God knows things we don't, that God is aware of things we're not aware of. And when we say, Lord, why are you deviating from the battle plan? He says, you don't have the battle plan. I do. Last week, we saw how Moses was commanded by God as an 80-year-old man. Imagine being 80 years old. You think your life is coming to an end, and God says, no, your real work is just beginning. God says, go to Egypt, go to Pharaoh, most powerful man on earth, and say, let my people go, says the Lord. And remember, if you were here last week with us, Moses objected five different times, and God stuck with him. And now, this week, he goes and obeys, and we're about to see what happens. Exodus 5, 1 through 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, two things I want you to notice. Number one, Moses doesn't go to Pharaoh and say, You have to set us free. He says, Let us go into the desert and celebrate a feast to the Lord. He's essentially saying, give us a few days off. Why does he start there? Well, we're going to find out later, but let's just say God has a plan, as he always does. The second thing I want you to see is Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord? Remember that term, the Lord, when we see it in all capitals in our English Bibles, that's that covenant name, Yahweh, the tetragrammaton we talked about last week, I am. And Pharaoh's saying, I've never heard of this God. We've got all kinds of gods here in Egypt, and they seem to be doing a good job for us. Look how powerful we are. Look how wealthy we are. Your God, whoever he might be, who I've never heard of, he doesn't seem to be much of a God based on how you're doing, so why should I listen to him? And in many ways, you could say that the book of Exodus is just one long answer to that question. Who is the Lord? You'll notice, in fact, that over and over again, God says, I am the Lord. I am he. My name is the Lord. The book of Exodus is not just about a group of people being set free. It's about God making himself known. So we pick up with verse 6. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they've made in the past, you shall not impose on them. Yo, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So Pharaoh says, okay, if you've got all this time to sit around and dream up gods I've never heard of and ways you can get out of work, then I'm just going to give you more work. I'm going to take away any free time you might have. So up till now, I've been giving you clay and straw and all the resources you need to make bricks. Remember, we talked about a few weeks how hard work that was. Well, I'm going to make that even harder. Now you're going to have to go get your own resources. But I'm not reducing the quota at all. And of course, the predictable happens. They're not making their quota. Suddenly their production drops. 
And Pharaoh shouts at his slave masters, and the slave masters beat the Hebrew foreman, whip them across the backs and say, okay, you're going to get more of this until you get your numbers back up. And the foremen go before Pharaoh and they say, listen, this is not right. You're expecting us to produce when you're not giving us the same material as you gave us before. This is impossible. And Pharaoh says, don't complain to me. I'm not the one who did this to you. Go talk to your little friends, Moses and Aaron. They're the ones who put you in this position. So picture these foremen go in to talk to Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron are waiting outside, waiting to hear what, what, what comes of that. And here's, here's what happens. Chapter 5, verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you've not delivered your people at all. What does Moses say? Lord, why aren't you going according to the battle plan? The way it's supposed to work, Lord, is I do your will and good things happen. I go do this heroic thing and our people walk away free. I act like a hero. My people treat me like a hero. Instead, I followed your will and the people hate me. I follow your will and we're still slaves. And in fact, things have gotten even worse for us. What kind of plan is this, Lord? And here's God's response in Exodus 6, verses 2 through 8. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, by my name the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Now, we're going to keep that scripture up there for just a minute. And I want you to notice the first sentence of his speech, of God's speech, and the last sentence are the same. I am the Lord. If you may recall, a few weeks ago when we were in our previous series, we talked about how in the ancient world, speech making was different. These days, you build up to your main point, and your main point is the thing you drive it home with at the end. But in the ancient world, speeches were more like a pyramid, where what you said first, you would repeat at the end. And what you said second, you would say second to last. And what you said third, you would say third to last. And it was all building up toward a peak in the middle. So your main point is the middle, the middle of your speech. And that's what God is doing here. He says, I am the Lord at the beginning, and I am the Lord at the end. In verse 3, he says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In verse 8, he says again, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In verse 4, he says, I established my covenant to give them the land of Canaan. In verse 8, he says, I will bring you into that land. So right there in that middle, in verses 6 and 7, this is what he's really trying to communicate. And that is, tell the Israelites, nothing has changed. I am the Lord your God, and I will make you free. Stick with me and you will be freed from slavery 
Stick with me and you will have a country of your own. You will have a land of your own and I will be your God forever. The only thing that can mess this plan up is if you walk away, is if you turn your back on me. So to Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord? God answers right here and says, I am. I am the God who saves. I am the God who is stronger than you, Pharaoh. I am the God who is greater than any evil force. I will take care of you. Think about God. uh, just, Just look at God's forethought. God knew what kind of man Pharaoh was. He knew that if Moses and Aaron walked in front of this man and said, listen, we've got a very reasonable request for you. Just just give us a few days just to to worship our Lord. We've worked hard. We deserve a few days off. Any reasonable human, any reasonable boss, if you're getting 12 hours a day, seven days a week out of your employees, so to speak, you got to be a colossal jerk not to give them a few days off, right? God knew that Pharaoh was a colossal jerk. Think about it. What if Pharaoh, in in an alternate universe, think about what if Pharaoh was an ordinary, decent human being? And Moses and Aaron come before him and make their request. And he says, you know what? Not only will I give you a few days off, turns out, now that I think about it, we have no right to enslave our fellow human beings. You're just as human as we are. I'm going to set you free. If you want to keep working here, we'll pay you a living wage. If not, you can go with our blessing. But either way, we repent of our slavery, our our slaveholding, and we set you free. And and if that would have happened, history would be different. There would be statues of Pharaoh in Jerusalem today. Jewish men and women would name their sons after him. He'd be known as the great emancipator. But God knew that's not the kind of man Pharaoh was. Pharaoh instead was a man on the order of Adolf Hitler or Pol Pot or Joseph Stalin or any of the great dictators you want to name. A man who cared nothing about human life but only about his own power. God knew what was going to happen, how this man would respond. And he said, I'm going to use this man to not only bring about judgment upon his evil heart and the awful things he's done, but also to set my people free and also to reveal to the Egyptian people, your leader is not a living God. He is a petty despot who needs to be overthrown. And your gods aren't real, but I am. And to declare to all generations from then on, I am the God who saves. Isn't that awesome? God knew what would happen, and he played this man like a fiddle. So, Moses goes back to the people. And he tells them what God said. By the way, notice God still hasn't given Moses the battle plan. He knows the end game. He knows God's goal. He knows what God's trying to accomplish. He doesn't know how they're going to get there yet. Moses goes to the people and he tells them everything the Lord told him to say. Let's stick with God. He's going to set us free. He's going to take care of us. Look at the response of the people. It's not what you expect. Exodus 6, 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. That word broken spirit, that term broken spirit in Hebrew, it literally means shortness of breath. Do you remember ever crying so hard that you couldn't breathe? I remember when I was a little kid, it would happen from time to time. I'd get really, really upset and I'd be crying so hard, I just, I couldn't catch my breath. Some of you probably remember that, but sad to say some of you have experienced that as adults. 
maybe even recently, the pains of this world have come crashing down on you in such a way that you, you wept until there was no strength left to weep. Maybe you're going through one of those times right now. In fact, let me just ask you real quick. If right now you would say, I'm, I'm fighting a battle right now that I'm not winning and I need help. I need the help of the Lord. I need, I need supernatural help. If you would like to let us know so we can pray for you, would you raise your hand? Yeah. And more, there's more where that came from. What does God say to us in that moment? What does God say to us when we think, I don't know how to trust you, Lord, because things aren't going the way I want. See, next week we're going to see the action really begin. The, the plagues from God, the judgment of God is going to fall on the land of Egypt. But for now, they just have to trust. So God gives us in this passage two warnings and one piece of very good news. Warning number one, doing the will of God doesn't always pay off in the short term. And some of you can testify to that. Some of you would say, when I came to Jesus, I was an adult. I had this group of friends. We did everything together. But once I came to Christ, they ditched me. They dropped me like a hot rock. I joined a church and I thought, okay, now I'll have friends again. But it took a long time because all the church people were churchy and I was very, very not churchy. And so they didn't warm to me. I mean, they were friendly, but nobody actually wanted to be my friend. And so I was very lonely for quite a while. It was hard. And others might say, I tried to obey the command of God to, to uh, reconcile with those who are estranged from me. And so I went to this person who we hadn't spoken in a long time. And I just, I just poured out my heart and said, I, I confessed everything I had done and the responsibility that I bore for that. And I thought that, that he or she was going to respond by saying, I forgive you. But no, they blasted me. And in fact, went and told all my friends that I had admitted it was all my fault. Or another person might say, I, I was trying to help someone who was in need and, and, and I, I tried to walk alongside them and get them out of the, their pit right that they're in, but they took advantage of my generosity, didn't really actually help them at all, just took advantage of me. And, and now every, every beaten down struggler uh, sees me as an easy mark. Another person might say, I, I got serious about my faith because I was hoping it would save my marriage, but my wife left me anyway. But my, my child not, still not talking to me, even though I'm a new person, they, they still don't trust me. Sometimes we think things are going to go a certain way when we obey the Lord, and in the short term, they don't. Now, I'm here to testify and, and tell you with all my heart that obedience to God always turns out for the best. You will never, ever ultimately regret doing the will of God. But in the short term, sometimes things get darker before the dawn. And the, the word of the scriptures to us bears that out because over and over again, it tells us to persevere. Galatians 6, 9, one of my favorite scriptures, do not grow weary in doing good. Why does Paul say that? Because he knows there's going to be times where we're like, I'm tired of doing God's will. It's not working out. Paul says, do not grow weary in doing good. For in due time, you will reap a harvest if you do not quit. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, Sorrow may last for the night, but what comes in the morning? What comes? Joy. You just got to hold on. It doesn't work sometimes in the short term, but it always works in the end. God's battle plans are, are foolproof. Second warning. Our hearts are easily tempted by counterfeit saviors. In the centuries to come, we see Israel stumble over and over again. What happens is they're this tiny little nation 
And they'll look at these great big nations on their borders or in their region and think, you know, Babylon's really successful. We ought to worship their gods. Or, hey, look, Assyria is conquering nation after nation. We ought, to, we ought to try worshiping their gods. And it always ends up in disgrace and defeat and despair. And every single time the same thing happens. When, they're, when they're, their hearts are broken and they have no more strength to weep, they think back to this story, the story of the Exodus, and they say, oh yeah, why did we ever depart from the God who saves? He's the God who got us out of Slavery in the first place. Our forefathers were slaves and we have our own nation because of him. Let's return to him. In the same way, I believe with all my heart. If you want to know why the American church doesn't have the cultural influence it once had, why why with every passing year it seems like we as Christians are becoming more and more the minority in in our country, Don't blame the media. Don't blame the political left. Don't blame atheists or Muslims or whoever you want to blame. It's on us. Because we have chosen to chase after other things instead of the one true God. We have chosen to place our identity and our purpose and our hope in these other things. And that's called idolatry. You may not have a shrine in your house where you bow down to Molech or Baal or Buddha or Allah or anybody else but you still have an idolatry problem. You and I do. The American church does. And we say, yeah, I believe in Jesus and I go to church, but deep down inside, we think our only real hope is if I could just have my family be happy and healthy and my kids grow up and and, and be well-adjusted, or if I could just get to the, the right stage of my career, if I could just get this level of income, or if we could just get the right people elected and they could put in pro- and process the right laws, or if, we could ju- if I could just make these particular people, this group of people, think that I've done a good job and approve of me. And all those things lead to despair. None of those things are bad, by the way. Approval, political power, family, wealth, success, those can all be very, very good things. But when they become ultimate things, they are an idol that destroys. And so I think what needs to happen is American Christians, that's you and me, not theoretical American Christians, that's you and me, need to search our hearts and come before God in humility and say, God, I have made this thing over here my one true thing. And I believe in you, but I'm just sort of like, yeah, get me to heaven when I die. Right now, my real hope is in this. And Lord, I don't want to be that way anymore. I want to put that in its proper place, and I want to put you back on the throne of my heart. And when that starts to happen on an ongoing basis, on a consistent basis, you know what you call it? It's called revival. You see, revival, the revival of America is not when lost people start acting like saved people. Because right now they're acting like lost people, which is what they're supposed to do. Revival is what happens when the church starts acting like the church. It's when God's people start putting God first. And we remember The counterfeit saviors don't save. We have a different Exodus story. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. And then finally, number three, the good news that God gives in this story is God's grace and power are enough. See, the thing I love about this story is in verse nine, Moses goes to them and he says, listen, guys, no reason to be upset. God's still with us. All you got to do is hang on. But they don't believe. Their hearts are broken. They weep and weep and have no more strength to weep. They have no faith right now. And you know what? God saves them anyway. 
Their faith is weak, but their God is strong. See, there's this school of thought, and this is a very popular message that you get from a lot of preachers today and from a lot of Christian books, and that is, if you have the right kind of faith, if you pray the right kind of prayer, if you donate the right amount to the right ministry, then God will give you anything you want. And that is baloney. I had to whip out my Greek on you. It is baloney, okay? It is not true. The truth is, it's not about the size of your faith. It's about the size of your God. It's not about how big you believe. It's about who you believe in. Jesus said, if your faith is the size of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. Trust in him and don't give up. And if you feel weak, that's okay. If you say, Lord, I can't do anything right, that's okay because he can't do anything wrong. And he's just gotten started working on you. And if you say, but I'm, I'm so afraid, he knows that, but he's bigger than whatever you're afraid of. As they say in VeggieTales, God is bigger than the boogeyman. If you say, I, I'm just so tired, I, I've been through too much, I can't carry on, he says, that's okay, because I'll carry you. And if you're a, a believer right now who sees another believer struggling, it's your job to help them bear that burden, to piggyback them until they're on the back of God and they can be carried. You see, there's this sci-fi movie from about 20 years ago called Men in Black, and I bet you never thought that would be mentioned in a sermon, but here goes. So at the end of Men in Black, some of you remember, the two main characters, these two agents, are standing face-to-face -face with a 30-foot-tall alien cockroach. Great sentence to say, right? The bug grabs their guns and eats them, leaving them defenseless. So the older of the two... Tommy Lee Jones, starts jumping up and down saying, eat me, eat me. And Will Smith is going, what kind of plan is that? The bug eats him and a few seconds later explodes. Why? Because Tommy Lee Jones got his gun inside the bug and blew him up from the inside. Pretty awesome plan. Now, as Nathan said, when Jesus, toward the end of his life, finally shared the battle plan with his disciples, remember, they'd been following him in three years. But finally, toward the end, he says, listen, you guys need to understand. I didn't come here to be the king. I came here to be a savior. I didn't come to occupy a throne. I came to occupy a cross. I'm not going to Jerusalem to take over. I'm going to Jerusalem to die for your sins. I'm not going to defeat your enemies militarily. They're going to conquer me. And as Nathan said, they, they were like, what kind of plan is this? We can't support this. When they went to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter pulls a sword and tries to stab a guy in the head. See, Jesus understood something they didn't. They didn't have the battle plan. He did. When he died, they wept. Satan rejoiced. And yet three days later, he walked out of the tomb triumphant. He defeated death by dying. He defeated sin by becoming sin for us. He defeated evil by blowing it up from the inside. And that's not something any of us would have predicted. That's not something any of us would have made up on our own. See, God knows what he's doing. In your darkest of nights, he knows. And if you would say to me, I just don't know where, the, where this is going, that's okay, because he does. And if you would say to me, yeah, I admit there's something in my life that's more important than God, remember, he's the one who saves. 
in your darkest of nights, he knows what he's doing. Let's tell him right now, Lord, I trust you.